0: the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm
1: Katherine Brobeck.
0: And this is our second bonus episode in which we take a break from Christie's novels. Today, we'll be discussing Christie's second published short story, The Tragedy at Marsden Manor, which was first published on April 13th, 1923 in The Sketch Magazine. Diving right in, let's start with the murder victim of this story.
1: Our victim is Mr. Mel Travers of Marsden Manor. He was found on his estate as he was out shooting rooks with his rook rifle by his side. As one does. Yeah, as one does, and blood (laughs) on his lips. He recently took out Mm -hmm. a life insurance policy for £50,000, which is actually the same amount of money as in The Adventure of the Western Star, uh, which is a huge amount of money. I feel like
0: Christy has... She just has, like, 50,000 pounds, i.e. a lot of money. She just sort of, like, used that as her catch-all for a lot of money it, it in nineteen twenty.
1: <laughs> it definitely seems that way. So we're talking about, you know, half a million pounds, probably, give or take, in today's money. And he was judged to be in good health at the time, but he died mere months later. So obviously the insurance company thought, like, yeah, that's pretty suspicious. And that maybe he killed himself so that his wife could collect the policy because it seemed like he was maybe about to go bankrupt. And Poirot is a friend of the director of the insurance company and uh, a favor was called in and he has been asked to investigate. So he and Hastings take a train to Marsden Lee.
0: Okay, so let's go through the suspects because it is not going to take very long. There are not nope. many suspects in this story, which is <laughs> a little bit a little bit of a problem. Oh, uh we should also
1: probably point so, out that it's about ten pages long.
0: Yes, that's true. This this is a very short short story. Uh, the first short story we did was I think twenty eight pages. This one is. I think, yeah, I think, I don't know, 12, 13 pages, something like that. So it's le- less than half. The the first and main suspect is Mrs. Meltravers, who's the young and beautiful wife of Mr. Maltravers. They have been married for just a little over a year. And when Poirot and Hastings uh, first meet her, they are struck both by her beauty, uh, especially Hastings, of course, <laughs> and also by how distraught she seems at her husband's death. She can barely hold it together
1: right and so then we get dr bernard who is the country doctor he is the one who examined the dead man and he's convinced that the death was some kind of ulcer like an internal hemorrhage of some kind and that accounts for the blood on the dead man's lips
0: which i would just like to point out that the internal hemorrhage they're talking about that creates blood on the lips many listeners may actually be familiar with this effect if they watched the final season of Downton Abbey when Lord Grantham... Spoiler alert if you're still making your way through Downton Abbey, although, who are yeah. you? Who are you if you're still making your way through Downton Abbey and listening to this podcast? I suspect you probably already watched it or just gave up seasons earlier. Yeah, that would be
1: me. Uh, as
0: many people I know did. That would. Oh, did you oh, give yeah. up on it? Yeah. But in the final season of Downton Abbey, there's this kind of spectacular scene where Lord Grantham, in their beautiful dining room, shoots up from the table and just vomits blood Everywhere, and everyone just kind of freaks out, and th- th- that's what happened to him. He had an ulcer that just exploded inside. Um, of him.
1: gee, I'm so not at all regretting that I did not watch that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so then the only other suspect that we're talking about is Captain Black, who's a distant family friend. Mm -hmm. He uh, is noted by Hastings as being not ill-looking, which is an interesting um, way to describe a person.
0: My theory on that is that Hastings, of course, will go into raptures about... Almost any woman that he comes across, but doesn't really care about what other men look like. So to even note the fact that he is not ill-looking means that Captain Black must be pretty darn handsome.
1: And he's very devoted to Mrs. Maltravers. And on top of it, he dined with um, the couple the night before Mr.
0: Maltravers died.
1: So that's it. Those are our only suspects.
0: So let's get to the world as it seems to be before we actually solve this mystery. Poirot manages to ascertain that what killed Mr. Maltravers was not an ulcer attack. It was actually a bullet to the brain from the Rook Rifle that's lying beside Mr. Maltravers' body. Uh, And a Rook Rifle is, you know, it's a small rifle that shoots small bullets, which is why the bullet, if it actually, if the the rifle was lodged into uh, the man's mouth and shot, Upward, it would actually get lodged in his brain and not shoot out the other side, which is why it's not obvious that this is what happened. Although I would argue that Dr. Bernard is a pretty bad doctor since I guess he didn't, you know, open the corpse's mouth. So the conclusion drawn from that is that Mr. Maltravers killed himself so that his wife could collect the massive insurance policy that he just took out and thereby avoid the financial ruin that that was coming upon him. And Poirot apologetically tells her, you know, I'm going to have to go tell the insurance company who sent me out here about this, and that means that the, you know, you're not going to be able to collect on the policy. Maybe the dishy Captain Black, who it's hinted uh, has feelings for her, will be able to comfort her. We're not sure. But that's kind of the state of affairs before we actually get to uh, figuring out what really happened to
1: We have one suspect.
0: We filled out the list of suspects just because we wanted to be able to list the characters even in the story. But to be fair, I feel like there's only one true suspect, which is Mrs. Mel Travers. So the question is, was it suicide or did she murder her husband?
1: And she um, obviously murdered her husband. In very (laughs) cold blood, I would say, too.
0: Very, very cold blood. This is actually a really, really dark one. But so the first clue that we come across might be my favorite because it is pretty random in that it involves one's understanding of what it means to be a Christian scientist, Basically, early in this story, Doctor Bernard makes this throwaway comment about Mr. Mel Travers being a Christian Scientist, which is why he never examined him when he was alive. And the thing about Christian Scientists is that they have this belief that they can essentially pray away any illness. That illness is more a state of mind, and that you know, being with God is allows allows one to to heal oneself. Whenever I think Christian Scientists, I always think of. The Secret Garden, because it was written by Francis Hodgson Burnett, who herself is a Christian scientist, and it's just a good concrete example of that philosophy in that you have that bedridden boy in that story, Colin, who has spent years just thinking that he's sick, and then, you know, through the magic of Mary and ultimately in The Secret Garden, he decides that he's not sick, and he's not, and then he's not. So there are a lot, there are a ton of cases, sadly, of Christian scientists not seeking medical attention because that's just not part of their philosophy which is what what dr bernard means when he says oh i think he was a christian scientist that's that's why i would never see him because christian scientists just they don't they don't fret over their health and they certainly don't seek but medical but the curious
1: thing about this as a clue is that if dr bernard had never seen mr maltravers how did dr bernard then know that mr Mel Travers was a Christian scientist. Somebody had to exactly. Somebody had to have told him that. And given that there's only one possibility of who that was, <laughs> it was Mrs. Mel Travers.
0: And she even, when she's talking to Poirot and Hastings, she says that her husband did fret a lot about his health and was very worried about getting a second ulcer attack because he had had a first ulcer attack. So she she is basically singing a different tune to them than the tune she must have sung to Dr. Bernard and so Poirot very early on his you know his um, little gray cells are telling him that something is not quite matching
1: right okay so our second clue then is that Mrs. Meltravers is quite upset to see that Captain Black is back in town And so from that, we clearly have to realize that there must be something that happened at dinner, perhaps, that was off and that she does not want to not come to the surface uh, since her husband has been murdered.
0: Right. So this is this is probably my least favorite clue in the story (laughs) because it's so awkward. Realizing this, Poirot then decides to engage in a game of word association where he says different words to Captain Black and notes what the responses are. I'm actually just going to read it because it's so weird. And and here we go. We will commence. This is Poirot. We will commence. Day. There was a moment's pause. And then Black replied, night. As Poirot proceeded, his answers came quicker. Name, said Poirot. Place. Bernard. Shaw. Tuesday. Dinner. Journey. Ship. Country. Uganda. Story. Lions. Rook rifle. Farm. shop Suicide. Elephant. Tusks. Money. Lawyers. That's it. By that point, I was like, what? What what am I reading? What's happening? Um, Yeah, I
1: mean, the Bernard Shaw (laughs) one was especially weird. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the the rationale, rationale, is that Poirot says that he can't possibly have known about Dr. Bernard because his immediate answer when presented with Bernard was not doctor, but the playwright. The
0: the whole thing's a little silly, but the key part of that wordplay is rook rifle, farm. Poro says shot, Captain Black says suicide. And what they come to realize after further questioning of Captain Black is that at dinner the night before Mr. Meltravers died, Captain Black told them a story about a man who had committed suicide with a rook rifle in Africa, which is where Captain Black had been. And the man was found with blood on his lips, exactly as Mr. Meltravers had been found. Third clue, this is very tiny. Uh, we can just do this this quickly mrs meltravers's eyes are extremely red she makes a little bit mu- too much out of her morning appearance hastings of course does not pick up on it but poirot suspects that she's putting rouge on her eyelids and i just have to say that the just imagining putting a powder on the on the around the rim of your eye just sounds really painful and
1: funny to me. funny story i was in a fashion show in college and the makeup artist.
0: You know that's how Kate Middleton. Made,
1: <laughs> I know, I know. Unfortunately, show, so. unfortunately, I did not get.
0: Fortunately, you did not meet. A I prince. did not
1: get a <laughs> giant sapphire ring out of it. I did, however, get a combination of <laughs> lipstick and some kind of powder um, used as eyeliner. And it is not pleasant to have eyeliner that is some combination of lipstick
0: and powder. So you can you can speak from experience as to the unpleasantness.
1: I can of definitely that. speak um, to the unpleasantness. Yes.
0: So given those three clues, it's pretty clear that there there are only two possibilities: either Mr. Meltravers heard that story at dinner and then he killed himself, or Mrs. Meltravers heard it and she used the story uh, deviously to kill her husband. And given those those three clues in totality, Poirot comes to the conclusion. That Mrs. Maltravers is the murderer, and we're at our final, uh, our, our final phase in our synopses of these stories, which is the reckoning, and this is quite a reckoning. It's got a lot of a lot of drama. <laughs> Essentially, Poirot exploits this local town legend that says Marsden Manor is haunted, and he hires a local actor to pretend to be the dead Mr. Maltravers at dinner using makeup and a flashlight and some phosphorescence on the tips of his fingers. And then he gets Inspector Jap to come down from Scotland Yard and tap intermittently at the window. <laughs> then Poirot pretends to lock a door that swings open to have Mrs. Maltravers watch terrified as the door swings open again, seeming to defy the laws of physics, revealing this actor as Mr. Maltravers. The lights go out, there's more banging. Poirot then grasps Mrs. Maltravers' hand, smearing it with red paint, then drawing her attention to it so that she assumes it's blood. And finally, after all of this, she confesses to having killed her husband. And what happened is that um, she heard the story, and then the next day, while they were out walking and her husband had the rook rifle, she must have referenced the story and said, how is that really possible? How could someone kill themselves with a rook rifle? The husband must have very helpfully demonstrated the rifle going into the roof of his mouth, at which point Mrs. Maltravers pulled the trigger and killed him.
1: Right, up close and and personal.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty—and the story ends with that explanation, Poirot saying, and she pulled the trigger, and it's just very final and brutal. Just a couple of thematic notes, I was struck by— the extreme skepticism of this story, especially pairing it to the first short story that we discussed, The Adventure of the Western Star. There was a rejection of the superstition in that story of all of all of the Chinese god business that was going on there. And we have the same thing here in that all of the haunting of Marston Manor and that whole sequence that Poirot concocts is, is very much false. But it's kind of like the superstition that... Mrs. Marsden harbors is what brings her down. Her fail, her lack of skepticism is what her ultimate downfall is. And it's you could argue that it's a, it's not quite credible that someone who is as calculating and cold blooded and devious as she would believe in ghosts.
1: But what are you saying know, that? you saying, that, are you ways, saying but, that all those ghost hunters yeah. shows aren't real? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it just like she's taking skepticism even a step further. I think. Agatha Christie seems to punish those who don't necessarily share it. To perhaps inject even more skepticism into this story, I was thinking about it, and uh, I went to law school. I, I suspect that if Mrs. Marsden employs a, even just a decent lawyer, that the confession that Poirot was able to get out of her, even though it was witnessed by multiple people, could probably be thrown out.
1: Well, even weirder, the fact that Inspector Jap is down there, like, tapping underneath the windows, we don't actually... um, Yeah. I mean, like, what was Scotland Yard doing in this?
0: You could almost argue it's... I mean, it's not really entrapment, but it's it's edging into that territory.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a setup for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think... um, at least Poirot here was not thinking forward to the uh, potential trial, I guess.
0: Right, right. Which is, he? you know, he, he's usually more forward-thinking than that. The other thing that struck me was the contrast between the short stories and the novels that we've discussed thus far. Because I think that in The Mysterious Affair at Styles and The Secret Adversary, The Murder on the Links, Christy is creating a happier world at the end of her story than seems to exist in the middle of it. And that's mainly through the happy conclusion of romantic subplots. It's actually, I can even be more specific than that. It's through uh, ending with two happy couples in all three of those books, all three of those books and end with two couples who had not been together over the course of the book. And seems like they might never be together being together at the end of the book. And there's a certain satisfaction and contentment, that ends those all's novels well, that that ends well. Entire, all's well that ends well that is entirely missing in these short stories and it's much more stark in this one than the western star but in the western star you know mary marvell is without is minus a diamond and the the woman who seemed like such an upstanding British wife had actually at least been in you know indiscreet right. with an American actor. And people are not exactly as they seem to be, and that doesn't get resolved. That's kind of a fact of life. And here it's even worse. The you know this young wife who seemed so distraught over her husband turns out to be just awful and doesn't care at all about the dashing Captain Black who may or may not actually be in love with her. He's just left in the lurch at the end and. The world is a colder place, and I think that that's something that Christie will be exploring a whole lot more of, not only in the short stories, but in the novels. I think they get a little bit more stark, and we, we don't have that sense of a happy right. ending or the world as it, as it really is necessarily being better or warmer or brighter than it seems to be in, in that more confusing
1: yeah, way. Yeah, or perhaps uh, even that it's worse that the only consolation yeah. that the only consolation is that at least it can be solved.
0: Exactly. Yeah, at least the murderer can be known.
1: <laughs> right, right. And get, and get yeah. caught, you yeah. know? I mean that that have that yeah. like loose ends tied up. But that's basically the only consolation that you get for these sort of terrible acts happening.
0: So should we talk about the adaptation? Yes.
1: Um it uh, obviously had to be fleshed out a little bit, I'd say.
0: I, I think this one really benefits from having to be fleshed out because they, I, I at least think that they only made it better. Oh,
1: definitely. So just to be clear, um, it was yeah. the sixth episode of the third season and it aired February 3rd, 1991.
0: Let's just start and go down, go through really quickly the mystery puzzle mm-hmm. complications that were added to the story because I thought they were really clever. Right. The the best one is that instead of this word association game, that's completely thrown out, and um, Captain Black comes to the Maltraverses at Marsden Manor with a gift for Mrs. Meltravers. And it's an African statue that he's wrapped in newspaper from Kenya or Kenya. as <laughs> yes, he does
1: call it. Uh, <laughs> Interestingly. <laughs> um,
0: uh, it, it, there's a newspaper from Kenya wrapped around the statue. Just as wrapping paper. And of course, it's the wrapping paper that is the key here, not the statue itself. Uh, There's a headline in, in that newspaper about a farmer killing himself with a rook rifle. And Mrs. Maltravers sees that headline, and that's what gives her the idea. And it's just such a better more clever, more interesting clue than the word association that happens in
1: the original. Right, although it is the obvious tell to the audience very
0: early on. Sort of. I actually, I, I would argue the opposite. I think it was, we both watched this af- right after having read the short story, so it was obvious to me. I saw the words of the, of the headline right away. I kind of feel like if I hadn't read the short story, though, it doesn't, I don't know if the camera even lingers that long on the newspaper. I guess it does. It lingers long enough to be able to read it Yeah, headline, it definitely does. I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's super obvious. Well,
1: it's, it's it a good attention point. is drawn to it because of the headlines placement on the parcel also. Sure. Sure. So, yeah. um,
0: but they had to do that. I mean, that's only fair. You have to give the viewer a decent chance to actually read that. Headline. Right.
1: Yeah, no, I, that that's definitely true. And also, there's a red herring in it, which is not in the story because it's containing what seems to be like some kind of talisman, right? Mm-hmm, An African mm-hmm, statue yeah. that plays into the sort of superstitious nature of the surroundings which are incredibly amped up in the adaptation.
0: Incredibly amped up, which is you know adds to the atmosphere and just makes it more interesting. There's it you know in the short story it's mentioned halfway through that there's a local myth about the house being haunted but that's it here we open up on voices and mrs Meltravers is very much seems to be haunted by this girl who killed herself at the estate generations ago and there's just there's a whole lot of superstitious stuff another clue is that mrs Meltravers is made to be an amateur painter and she claims to have been painting all morning before her husband's dead body was discovered. And when Poirot looks at the painting later, he says, ah, oh, this, this solves everything. <laughs> and of course, Hastings has no idea what he's talking about because Hastings never knows what Poirot is talking about until it's spoon-fed to him. And the shadows in the painting are all wrong. If Mrs. Marsden had been actually painting in the morning, the shadows would have been flipped. So she you know, must have painted the painting at another time and then she had it ready so that she could use that as her as her alibi so that's another that's a clue that's just added not like she
1: couldn't have like some artistic freedom with her uh with her work
0: it didn't it, it, she didn't look like the kind of painter that was being super expressive or abstract or going outside the the bounds of traditional painting
1: no so, i suppose that I mean, that's i suppose that that's the case um <laughs> so we should also talk about Mr. Mel Travers' secretary who has like mm-hmm. a very uh severe look. Um, you know the wife has a 1930s yes. kind of like curled blonde hair, sad eyes, delicate look and of course the secretary is rigid yeah. and uh, it seemed like perhaps she was in love with Mr. Mel Travers. Yeah. And certainly re- Yeah, she
0: had a little she she had a little bit of a Jane Eyre mixed with Miss Hannigan.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that that's definitely, definitely right. And it had, it had that distinct vibe <laughs> to it. And also it's clear that she's like resentful towards Mrs. Maltrafford.
0: And again, there were, there were no suspects in the original short story. So they had to add a character like that. It was just, it was necessary.
1: Right. And Captain, Bl- and Captain Black is also a more convincing possible suspect. Suspects.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's around more. He is, he's more in the story. The last clue that they added is that rather than have the brook rifle just be um, lying next to the dead body, um, it's not. And what happened is that Mr. Mrs. Maltravers concealed the rook rifle in some bushes. And when she did, she disturbed a robin's nest, which is why when they are searching around the dead man's body, they find these eggs on the ground and one of them breaks open and Poirot just uses that to deduce to help deduce what exactly happened.
1: Right. And then the other uh, big addition, I would say, is that the actual mechanism to get Poirot and Hastings involved is
0: completely
1: mm-hmm. different. And it actually... It's so much better. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> way more charming, although it seems implausible somehow basically a very overeager amateur novelist had mailed a letter to poirot because really he needed poirot's help finishing his uh mystery book but um poirot for some unclear reason misreads the letter and think he's thinks he's actually being brought in on a real case
0: well i think the 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 innkeeper aspiring novelist innkeeper. it sounds like his i don't know if his letter was purposely as misleading as it turned out to be but it 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 read as this very real and intriguing case and it of course was just an entirely fictional case and we get a close-up on the manuscript itself and we see that he's chosen a pseudonym of clarissa naughton which I think that Clarissa is at least is a, uh, a clever little nod to Agatha. It's more clever than calling, her, calling, calling him Agatha Naughton. Um, Clarissa was one of Agatha Christie's middle names. It was the name of her mother. Um, so it's just a name that's somewhat associated with her for, for people who know their Christie trivia. I appreciated that. And it actually made me think, of something that Christy talked about in her autobiography. Yep, I am shoehorning an autobiography (laughs) passage into this discussion because that is what I do. I just thought this was interesting that um, Christy actually wanted to use a pseudonym herself, and here's what she wrote about that. I had wanted to write my books under a fancy name, Martin West or Mostyn Gray, but John Lane, that is her UK publisher, had been insistent on keeping my own name, Agatha Christie, particularly the Christian name. He said, Agatha is an unusual name which remains in people's memories. So I had to abandon Martin West and label myself henceforth as Agatha Christie. I had the idea that a woman's name would prejudice people against my work, especially in detective stories, that Martin West would be more manly and forthright. However, as I have said, when you are publishing a first book, you give way to whatever is suggested to you, and in this case, I think John Lane was right.
1: Oh, um, Giving credit, giving some mild credit to uh,
0: some mild credit to to John Lane at the Bodley Head, who she would we'll will get to this in a book or two, but she she would not be having such warm feelings about him <laughs> later. Fairly quickly, but obviously the way that Poirot gets to Marsden Manor is much more comedic than in the well, in the, the original story. And also, story. I would
1: point out, I, I would point out that the reason he gets involved in the case is because of an ex- exactly the same plot mechanism. That was used in Murder on the Links, which is that he was like recognized on the street. Um, I mean, I don't know, like, it's hard to imagine, especially in a pre-internet age, that he's that recognizable in just random towns in the English countryside. But I guess... I guess he is.
0: Well, if that random town in English countryside has a wax works museum that features a waxwork of Hercule Poirot himself, perhaps he would be. Recognized.
1: Well, that is also as you say very convenient that this small English town has uh, a wax museum and, yes. and and that Monsieur Poirot has uh, his own wax figure.
0: Yeah, I, there's, and there's a bit of hijinks that go on with the wax figure. I love this moment at the end of the adaptation when they're back in the wax museum. Poirot is so excited for Hastings and Jap to see his waxwork figure. And they very meanly pretend, they don't really pretend not to see it, but they refuse to comment on it, and Poirot leaves in a huff, and then Hastings puts the tie askew, and Jap tilts the hat, <laughs> and they leave. And it's, it's, an, it's, it's an adorable moment. Well, I suppose we better be leaving. Catch our train. Oh, no, 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 Chief Inspector. It is still early. And the exhibits here are quite remarkable,
1: Nesta. To be immortalized in such a fashion unique. Ah, on her. Oh, I wonder what is around here.
0: Oh, very impressive. Quite incredible. It's a masterpiece. True work of art. His curly hair to a T. He even got the little dimples on his cheeks. Look, a real piece of craftsmanship, wouldn't you say?
1: The whole tone is a little more antic-filled than I think the actual short story is.
0: Oh God, yeah. I mean, I I also love uh, David Suchet has this brilliantly funny look of just abject white hot rage
1: on his (laughs) face when he finds out
0: that that the innkeeper has we we can't clip it because it's all visual there's no there's no audio but when he finds out that the innkeeper is talking about a novel and not an actual case he's just so angry. And then in the next scene, also one of my favorite parts, he calls it a wild gooseberry hunt. <laughs> yes. Which is what he what he means for a wild goose chase. Sometimes the Poirot, oh, he's not that good at English jokes are not that great, but I, I thought a wild gooseberry hunt.
1: Was no, funny. it was charming. And I think the other thing, the small detail that I really loved later on, and it's literally like one line, but he actually does figure out a solution to the innkeeper's mystery.
0: Yes, that and it involves a poison dart
1: uh-huh. thrown out a fruit window ca-
0: into a fruitcake. Yeah. I think it's a poison dart through a window into a fruitcake, but there are definitely poison darts that feature in solutions to mystery puzzle. No,
1: But fun. I mean, there's just a small detail that even though he's so incredibly enraged that this is what brought him to the inn, he can't help himself. He has to figure out a solution. It's yeah, yeah, o- mystery solving OCD.
0: <laughs> there's also a, a funny moment when they go to visit the doctor.
1: Is it an emergency? The doctor does have rather a lot of house calls later this morning. S'il vous plait, madame, say to
0: him it is Hercule Poirot. Thank you, doctor. I think that he will see me. Goodbye.
1: Doctor, there's a gentleman outside suffering from Hercule Poirot. He seems to think it's quite serious.
0: There's just a lot of really, really bad yet adorable jokes going on in this. And, and I think it's just when you, have, when you have such a basic story that you can fill out so much, the producers and the writer and the director of this series – just ran with it. And I'm realizing now reading these stories and watching them back to back that that, that's like such a key part of why this series is as as good as it was. Obviously, it has the bones of these amazing mysteries, but the additions and the tweaks that they do as to tone are brilliant and
1: crucial. Right, and it helps, um, you know, we've said this before, but having touchstone characters. I mean, Hastings and Jap are clearly in the short story Jap I mean barely but uh,
0: I don't think we ever Jap is mentioned but I don't ever I don't think he's even he even appears on the page we know he was at the window tapping I don't even know he he doesn't
1: Um, but he's incorporated into the television episode much earlier
0: right and just there the period flair that they add to like there's this there's a scene involving a civil defense meeting you know this is set in the mid-30s it's ramping up to World War II and all the people in the town go into what seems to be the town hall and they're learning how to use gas masks. Mm-hmm. And it's actually at, even used to add to the intrigue because Mrs. Maltravers pretends that someone tried to chloroform her gas mask when she's actually the one that chloroformed herself. Right. But just that period detail is, its a, that, that was a weird time that there were these civil defense meetings where people were learning how to use gas masks and just sort of
1: it um, actually is an know, it's eerie. The thing like the, it's an eerie shot too when they first enter the auditorium. It's, it's
0: really oh well because those old-fashioned gas masks are are super eerie. They're very alien looking. Right. No, I agree. I mean the whole episode with all of the superstitious, haunting kind of ghost stuff that's happening is. Even, even with all the lightness it certainly has its creepy moments too it's just it's kind of firing on all cylinders right I loved this episode if you can't tell
1: um I uh, I can tell um i <laughs> I enjoyed it very much and I mean I just think mostly because the mystery is not all that intriguing right but the actual atmospherics yeah. are great and also this is just a random aside uh, because I'm um, real estate nerd but i mm-hmm. was obsessed with the house
0: oh yeah the house is the house is gorgeous the
1: house is like this georgian um you know country manor that has like the room that she paints in is fabulous like a solarium
0: i actually know what it's called oh this is the, because i it's senno hall okay which is a large house and estate located in uh north norfolk england and I'd say a Georgian house built in good for I would not have known that that was a Georgian house. Good for you. Nerd. A Georgian house built in <laughs> built in 1774 for Edmund Woodhouse MP. So there you there go. You
1: go. Uh, yeah, I was, um, you know, I think I think one of the great things about the show. I mean, all the period details, obviously, but their location choices are pretty much consistently mm-hmm. top tier. Like, that is some A-game it's A game. Sho- it's a showcase
0: shouting. for, yeah, I mean, it's a showcase for. The beauty of England, yeah, <laughs> and it's also
1: it's, just it's also nice, you know, to have like a variety because you know some of the, mm-hmm. I mean, deco buildings are obviously all great, sure. but you know this was like a lovely little surprise that I was really excited to you know sort of voyeuristically look at. So that was this week's bonus. Thank you so much for listening. And please check out our Twitter account at all about
0: the Dame. You can also contact us via email. We would love to hear from you at all about at gmail.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to us and really help us reach more people. And
1: we love feedback. So, yes. join us again next week when we read The Man in the Brown Suit. Can't wait. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.